as we come to know the seriousness of the situation, the war, the racism, the poverty in our world, we will come to realize that things will not be changed simply by words or demonstrations. Rather, it is a question of living one's life in a drastically different way. Dorothy Day. Hey guys, good morning. <laughs> it's a cool November morning, and I'm out on the trails. I am Jay Randall Ori. This is a Construction Monk podcast, and I am a church anthropologist, activist, a teacher of contemplation, and a carpenter. That's why I'm a construction monk. So I mentioned this uh, towards the end of our last series called On Being Church. Um, I've changed kind of, um, I don't know, the mission statement, the moniker, uh, my branding, you could say, my focus. Or I've just realized that this has been my focus and I didn't really know it until recently. That being anthropology and activism. And this that is the name of this episode. This is a kind of a one-off uh, just introducing this, these words, these new concepts. But really, this is what I've been doing, and this is what we've been talking about in the last series on being church. Um, I'm just using words that you may not be familiar with to describe something that you already are, and something that's actually very replete and integral to the Bible itself. Anthropology and activism. Now, the word that I used in this last series was culture. We talked about the culture of the church, what the, what the church has been or what the church should be in light of what it has been. We're talking about the, the culture of church, and that's my, my bachelor's and my master's are in humanities, which is the study of culture, and anthropology is that. I'm a cultural anthropologist. Now, there are four kinds of anthropologists, and anthropology falls under really the general title of humanities, which is the study of human culture. It's like the humanities is the study of history, philosophy, the arts, even biology. Um, philo- uh, did I say philosophy? I think so. Um, you know, music. It's kind of the study of human culture. And of course, what we're talking about, what we've been talking about is church culture. And church culture is a part of human culture, right? It's not separate. Like, what we've been talking about is the enmeshing of church and state through the Middle Ages uh, in our last series. But really, there's a reason that that it's so easy to enmesh. It's because both of these things stem from humans. And humans naturally have a culture. And so there's political culture. There's religious culture. There's now what we call secular culture. There's, you know... um, educational culture, military culture, right? Culture is just, it's what we do naturally as humans. It's really born out of community and how we create communities and how we organize community and society. But culture is just like the air we breathe. I've probably used this illustration before, but it's a story of of two young fish swimming one day in the ocean and they swim past an older fish. And the older fish says, good morning, how's the water? And they look at each other, and they look at the older fish, and they say, What's water? (laughs) 
<laughs> and like the story, you know, is to illustrate the fact that culture is something we swim in. It's all around us. But we often don't even recognize our own culture. But recognizing culture is what anthropology is about. Let me go to, I had this looked up. And I'm, I'm wearing gloves, so this makes all of this more fun because it's cold. It makes it all more fun trying to navigate my information, my research. Um, here we go. There are four subfields of anthropology. There's archaeology, biological anthropology, cultural anthropology, and linguistic anthropology. And again, anthropology, just think culture. Like archaeology is like the the is like physical anthropology like what have humans left behind and what what can we learn most of what we know from ancient cultures is from archaeology the things humans made and built and left behind a lot of what we know about ancient culture comes from that because there wasn't really written that much at all written down i mean ancient ancient culture they didn't have textual language they didn't have written language it was most tri- most cultures were oral had oral traditions that was passed down from person to person their like their history and their their wisdom there wasn't much written down that's archaeology biological anthropology is just a study of you know matter you could say you know the body um cultural anthropology is what i'm talking about is kind of um the culture of community, you know, the way that we think, philosophy, the way we think about things, the way we, the lens through which we view the world, we could say it that way. And then linguistic anthropology, language itself. Like, for here's a good example with, of linguistic anthropology. Uh, the Greek, in the Greek language, they had four words for love. And I've actually talked about that in, in a uh, old, older episode. We have one. We have the word love. Greeks had three words. Eros, phileo, agape, and... Um, oh, I don't remember the, the fourth. But they had four different words to define what we use. One word to define. You know? Um, eros was more romantic love. Agape was brotherly love. Or phileo was brotherly love. Agape was um, altruistic love. And darn, I don't remember the fourth. Huh. Anyway, the Jews had three words for love. Um, Ahava is one. I can't remember all those. Anyway, that's just an example of linguistic anthropology. Pretty cool, huh? So, like, what does that, got, what does that have to do with the church? With the Bible? With the gospel? With God? What, and what about activism, right? So I think, I think I can, you know, make a really good, easy case for anthropology because that's what we've been talking about for the last 14 episodes of the last series on being church. We've been talking about church culture. So anthropology is just understanding the culture of church in the broadest sense, like the church from its beginning till now. What has it been at different stages and history what has it been like what 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 has it been in different places different at different times and how has all of that influenced and culminated in the church as it is today right that's what we've been talking about so anthropology i don't think it's hard to make a case that it's important to understand church anthropology right 
Like first, I would encourage you to understand your church's anthropology, to be a church anthropologist. That's what I'm talking about. I'm encouraging you to be a church anthropologist. What? First, understand your church's culture. And you're already doing that. You listen to sermons like your church has a particular theology. It has a particular stance. It positions itself in a particular way within the broader church. It has a tradition. Your church tradition is akin to its anthropology, to its culture, right? Are you Armenian? Are you post-millennial? You know, are you Calvinist? Are you Lutheran? Um, do you take a literal view of Scripture? Um, so many different ways that you can understand your culture. Like, are you pacifist? Right? We've talked about all these different flavors of church that have effervesced over the years. Does your church emphasize orthodoxy over orthocac? Is your church more charismatic and spirit-focused? Or is it more intellectual and knowing the Bible and knowledge-focused? You know, right? Like, all these things speak to the culture of your particular church. So first, you should be a church anthropologist concerning your own church. And you, you already are, really. I mean, I hope you are. <laughs> I hope you know your church's um, culture. Here's a, here we go. Here's an official Oxford Dictionary definition of anthropology. The study of human societies and cultures and their development. Okay? That's anthropology. The study of human societies and cultures and their development. So when I say church anthropology, the study of the church's society or the, uh, yeah. Well, you could say the study of human societies and cultures in relation to religion or the Christian religion, right? So church anthropology. It's something you're already surrounded by. So first, I would encourage you to understand your own particular church's anthropology, culture. But then I would also challenge you to understand it in context of where it came from. And where did it come from? Jesus. But it didn't just come from Jesus. This is what we've been talking about in this last series. It came from Jesus, and then from Jesus, the 12 apostles, and the first century church, and then the first four centuries of the church were persecuted and isolated and more orthocac focused more spirit focused more relationally focused and then the fourth century right so the fourth century the edict of milan and three i think it was 313 and then the first council of nicaea and then the patristic period and then the early middle ages and then the high middle ages and then the late middle ages and then the pre-modern era and then us right it's not just you, Jesus, the Bible, your pastor, and your particular church. That's, that would be a very, a very narrow view of church. But it's often the view we have. We often struggle to understand even our own church's culture. You know, but we just go to church, the pastor preaches sermons. And we nod our heads. Yes, this is the church we belong to. This is what we believe. This is the right way to see things. And maybe we have a peripheral view of other churches around us. But even that, that would begin to expand our concept of church anthropology in a larger sense. But that's still modern. That's still current. That's still contemporary. If all you know about the church is what's around you right now, 
That's the tip of the iceberg. I would challenge you to continue to learn about the church in the broadest sense. It's not just Jesus came and then your church popped up out of the ground and the Bible. And that's it. (laughs) There's such a long history. And that's what I want to do. As a church anthropologist, I want to help you delve in. I want to help us delve in and understand the depths and the intricacies of church culture, which incorporates 2,000 years of church. That's church anthropology in its broadest sense. And it's okay to have a particular tradition and to think or to couch yourself in a particular tradition, a particular church with a particular pastor, with a particular theology. That's okay. And it's okay to think, you know, it's okay to hold your views as your views and to think that for them or for you, they are the best and they work and that's okay. But if you don't have the comparison of the broader church culture, how do you really know if these are the best views? And that's just been my journey. I mean, that's what I've realized is I am a church anthropologist. It's like what I've been doing my whole life. I've never been satisfied with the preacher said it, the Bible said it, Jesus said it. That's good enough for me. <laughs> the Bible says it, I believe it. That settles it. That's never been my mantra. My mantra is the Bible says it, but I don't even know what the Bible says mostly. I know some verses, and mostly I know what my pastor says, and that's not good enough for me. I hope it's not good enough for you, and I hope that I can encourage you to continue to learn. Read the Bible for yourself. Learn about church history. Learn about your own church. Ask questions. Ask very particular questions. Why do we spend money the way we do? Why do we budget this? You know, transparency. The church I go to, it's a vineyard church here in East Tennessee. And they preach this all the time. Transparency. No secrets. They're clear. They're open about the budget. They're open about decisions. They are. They do a really good job in many ways trying to be as transparent as possible. Why? Because we are the church. And we all are participating in this thing. We're all part. Like, whether you admit it or not, whether you're the older fish or the younger fish who, you know, who sees the ocean or doesn't, you're a part of it and you influence it. Church is a group of people. We are the church. Ecclesia, a gathering of people. It's not a building. It's not a set of truths. It's a people. It's a community. And a community naturally has a culture. And that culture is naturally effervesced created by every single person you are a part of it and the more you recognize your part lean into it and develop it as your spiritual gifts and talents the things God's given you the more you lean into it the more you can affect the culture you live in not just be affected by it like culture is cyclical and compounding it's interrelated. It influences you and you influence it. And there's this dance. <laughs> Some could say a divine dance between you and the things, the systems of culture and religion, politics that you inhabit. The worst thing you can do is take a passive approach and say, uh, I'm, you know, who, who am I? I'm just going to sit in the pew, sit back, listen. But, I, you know, what can I do? Well, God, God doesn't look at you and say, uh, what can they do? You know, I'll just, you know, when it comes to spiritual gifts, I'm going to pass over 
these <laughs> you and you you know the you two are qualified no I like that phrase God doesn't call the qualified he qualifies the called right and we're all called but in answering the call we begin to discover our part we have a part to play and we do play a part in our church culture and if you're passive in it you still are playing a part right the preacher Preaching to an empty auditorium is not a church, right? You're there. You're a part. You're giving often. You're giving your tithe. You're supporting things. You have a voice. And discovering your voice is a part of becoming more active in your church culture and as, a, as an anthropologist. But I didn't just say church anthropology. I said church activism. And so activism has some connotations in our current culture. And it's sometimes, especially if you're a conservative politically, you don't like that word probably. But I would say both you know, in the political realm and the political ideology, activism is something that both sides, and I'm speaking to American politics, but generally in any country there, the terms conservative and liberal or progressive kind of do do uh, work but like i would say every aspect of the political life entails this idea of activism right and so don't just think oh that's the other party or that's the other political um paradigms kind of thing you know typically we would think more liberal politics is more activist but i disagree right like i see conservatives in the united states protesting right they'll protest abortion abortion clinics so like it's not just a liberal thing and it's not just a political thing activism is what the word the root word is active to take an active role to participate to get involved right and that's what i'm talking about i'm encouraging you to understand your church culture to understand the church culture and the broadest and then what to do something about it that's activism Look, the Bible is full of activists. Did you know that? I have some scriptures looked up about some church activists. Yeah. Uh, Now, they're not called that in scripture. You know what they're called? (laughs) They're called prophets. To name a few, they're called prophets. But really, I think it's just, it's a Christian thing. Like, Jesus was an activist. He protested the Jewish religion of his day very sternly and very strongly. Jesus was a religious activist. He was a church activist, you could say. It's not what, you know, they called their churches synagogues. The same thing, right? This is not exclusive to Christianity. Judaism had churches. They were called synagogues. It was a gathering, local gathering of believers, of religious folk, right? And Jesus came... His main message was, what? Well, repent. Hey, things aren't right. And here's what is right. Here's what we need to be doing. Here's what we've lost. You know, you say, but I say, you say, you know, it's okay to do this. I say, you know, you say, don't hate your brother. I say, if you even, you know, or you say, don't murder. I say, if if you hate your brother in your heart, it's the same thing, you know. You know, the scripture says, or you say, don't commit adultery. I say, if you lust after a woman in your heart, it's the same thing. And Jesus came and said, look, you know, you're keeping the letter of the law, but you're missing the spirit. My hands are cold. (laughs) Uh, I am wearing gloves, but um, 
it's, there's frost. Everything is frosty white. All the trees. And um, Anyway, activism was a central part of what Jesus came to do. Why? Because activism entails pointing out that things aren't right. Pointing out, pointing to what needs to change. And that's okay. Like, it's good. Like, it's good for you to recognize authority in your church, the pastor, elders, deacons, teachers. Like, these are, again, we talked about this in the second episode of On Being Church. It was called Hierarchy, right? There's a hierarchy of maturity, but not of power. The power structure, the way Jesus imagines it in the church, is upside down to the kingdom or to the kingdoms of the earth or the political structures of the earth. It's a pyramid. The, the human institutions imagine power as a pyramid. And there's someone at the top and there's a lot of people at the bottom and in between there's a lot of places. But it's all people over people over people. And Jesus said, we don't do this like the Gentiles. We don't lord it over. We don't hold power over people. We're servants. Jesus' final act in, at the Last Supper, the Seder meal, the Jewish Seder meal, his final act was to wash the disciples' feet. And he said, look, you call me Lord, and rightly so. But I'm setting you a new example, a new way to imagine things. This is God's way. This is the kingdom of God way. It is. You get below people. You don't, you don't stand over people. If you're appointed by God with power to lead, you're a servant leader. This is the term. This is where that term comes from. We get below. We serve. We do the dirty work. We are humble. This is kingdom character here. We're humble. And so you may be a part of a church and there may be a hierarchy of leaders, but it's not a power structure where they're in charge and you better sit down and shut up. And if you don't agree, there's the door. That's not the kind of power structure Jesus imagined for the church. He imagined that the people with the most power are the people serving the most and and getting below people to lift them up. This is, this is humility. This is gentleness. This is meekness. Like the character qualities that God most desires and most displays are humble, meek. God condescends. Jesus lowered himself, becoming taking on the form of a human. This is from Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. He did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he lowered himself. And so you may be looking around at your church and saying, look, I'm not in charge of anything. I, I, I come to church. I give my money. I listen. I participate, you know, in the programs. But who am I? And God would say to you, you are my child. You're my son. You're my daughter. You have a gift. You have a calling. You have a part to play. You are a part. The body is a body of many parts. And each part must do its work for the body to be healthy. It's not just the job of the pastor and the paid positions to lead the church, to affect the culture of the church, and you don't have a say. You do. Now, it may not be accepted, right? It may may stir things up. It may rock the boat. You may make waves. But like the point of an activist, of a church activist, isn't to make waves and to, to stir things up. The point of a church activist is, is, is to say, hey, I see this. I see this need. I see this issue. I see this dysfunction. 
I see some things that need to change. I don't necessarily agree with that. I have a voice. It's not contentious, right? It's, it's how, again, the character of God. Humble. God comes alongside us. and He doesn't come alongside us and say, you're messed up and I'm really mad. <laughs> he comes alongside us and said, hey, I love you. I see some things that need to change. I want you to thrive. I want you to be the best person you could be. So we're going to walk together and I'm going to point some things out and I'm going to help you change. And this is what we do in the character of God as people, as a part of the church, as church anthropologists and activists. We say, hey, you know what? I see my church. I see it doing. I see what it's doing. I love this. I love that. But you know what? Over here, I see a need. I see something we're missing. In the first century church, we see this. Some people came to the apostles and said, look, in the distribution of food, there's a difference between the Hellenistic widows, and, which were Greek, and the Jewish widows. Like, there was some favoritism going on. And I, I, don't, I don't remember the passage, but I think it was the Jewish widows that were being favored and the Hellenistic or the Greek, right? Because they were more Gentile and Jews didn't like Gentiles. And so there was this discrepancy. And so some people actually came to the apostles and pointed it out. They didn't say, oh, it's not our place. We're not in charge. They said, no, hey, there's a problem. And, and the apostles said, hey, it's not our, that's not, we're not called to that. But look, we're going to appoint these seven people. And Stephen was one of them. The martyr, Stephen, the first martyr of the church. They appointed seven people to handle this issue. They said, hey, you know what? Great. Thank you for drawing this to our attention. Now we're going to pick seven people who are full of the spirit to handle this. And they did, right? Some people brought an issue to the leaders of the first century church, the very first church, and said there's a problem. And so guess what? The people, the very people, the 12 apostles that Jesus trained, even their church had problems, okay? So don't think your church doesn't have problems and don't think you can't bring it to people's attention and don't think that maybe you could also be a part of the solution. (laughs) That's church anthropology and activism, Don't take a passive role. God hasn't called you to take a passive role, to just give your money, sit down, shut up, and you don't have anything to say or anything to do in affecting the culture of your church. That's not how it works. God has called you to be a part, and you've got to add your part to make the whole healthy. And your part often is is the fact that, or entails the fact that, You may be bringing things nobody else does, and so you may see needs that nobody else does. And so if you're waiting for somebody else to ask you to do it, that may never happen. So maybe you need to stand up and start to do it. And guess what? You don't always have to bring attention to it to do it either. And you don't always have to have permission to do it. Like God's the one that gives you permission. If God's called you to do something and put something on your heart, do it. (sighs) Let's get to some scriptures. Um, I want to first start in Revelation. And I have, like, Revelation's just a cool place to start because this is John. John's a prophet. John's on the island of Patmos and he receives this vision. I may get to Daniel. I just think there's some things to be learned. Well, before I jump into, into Revelation, I just wanted to, I read this study yesterday. It's a survey. Um, you know, I don't have the... I don't know who put who did this survey. I my apologies. But so the survey this is in 2020. So it's a Gallup survey. There you go. A Gallup survey. Gallup polls, right? They're they're 
did I do pretty good surveys? All right, we can trust them. In 2020, 47% of U.S. adults were were members of a church, synagogue, or mosque. So 47, like this, the, the basic study is like, hey, for the first time in the history of the United States, the amount of people that consider themselves religious means they belong to a religious institution. It's fallen below half for the first time. Church, synagogue, mosque. Those, these are the three big monotheistic religions, but also the three big religions of the United States, of the West, Less than 50% of people in the U.S. now consider themselves religious. And according to the survey, this breaks it down a little further. 66% of those are adults born before 1946. 58% are baby boomers. 50% are Gen X. And 36% are millennials. Do you see the trend? As you get to the younger and younger generations, less and less people make up that 47% of religious people. Do you see the trend? It's undeniable. Europe is post-Christian. Um, you know, the United States is becoming post-Christian. Becoming post-religious. Something is not right with our church. If you sit back and say, well, my church is fine. I don't need to do anything. No. Maybe your church is fine. I doubt it. I, I'm sure your church is great, but doesn't mean it doesn't need improvement. And we can see as a whole, right? The idea of culture is the microcosm and the, the micro and the macro, right? Your tiny little church is a microcosm of the big church. And so if there's something wrong with the whole, then there's something wrong with the parts of the whole. And you can't say, well, my part's fine. Well, that's not how the body works. One part of the body is healthy, but the body as a whole isn't. You have to assume that also your part is being affected. And you have a part to play. That's culture. Culture is cumulative. It's, you can't isolate and say, well, but my little part here is fine. And that's, all, and that's good. And no, maybe your part's good. It's not perfect. And if the whole is sick, the parts have a responsibility. If the church as a whole is shrinking, if younger and younger generations are becoming less and less interested in church, guess what? I guarantee in your city, the microcosm of your city is about the same as the macro of your nation, wherever you are. What your church does affects your city, affects your state, affects the nation. And so if the church is shrinking, if younger and younger generations are like, mm, I'm done with religion, 36% of millennials, this is the future people, the millennials, 36%, and what do you think they're going to teach their kids? 36%, 64% of millennials are like, I'm done with church, with your church, with your religion, I'm done. So what are you going to do, church? There's something, if, what are you going to do? You can't sit back and go, well, I like my church. I don't know about the millennials, but I'm good. <laughs> you can't do that. It's not going to work. Okay. There's my spiel about the church. Like, my point is there is like, you can't say everything's fine. It's not fine. God is putting a burden on his church to change. You can't just say, well, the problem's outside. It's not. And here we see in Revelation, John... We, we think that, that it's thought that this was probably written late, late first century, possibly the book of Revelation by John, possibly 95, 90, 95. So this is within the first century 
of the church. And in the first three chapters of Revelation, John receives a critique of the church from Jesus himself. Jesus comes to John and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to you about the culture of church. Jesus is like, I'm going to be a church anthropologist and activist right now. And I'm calling you to be a church anthropologist and activist, John. I'm going to sit and talk to you about the culture and the state of the church. And I'm going to do it by pointing out seven main churches, the seven biggest churches. So Jesus is being a church anthropologist and activist. He's making an assessment about the culture of these seven churches. And then he's also going, and here's what needs to change. So let's take a look. Again, church anthropology and activism right here in Revelation. So the church has been the church for almost 100 years. Okay. As we count time, the common era begins with Jesus' birth. So if Jesus died, we think Jesus died around 33. So the church has been the church. So if this was written in 95, well, I have to do math. About 62 years, the church has been the church. It's not, the, it's not been the church for very long, and there's already problems. And the basic summation is two of the churches are, of these seven, two of the seven are remaining faithful, and five of the seven are about to, as Jesus describes it, lose their lampstand, or it's about to be removed. Like, they're on the verge of really losing their place as churches, right? They've, they're, they're, they're on the brink. They're, as the church, there's five churches here, Jesus mentions in Revelation, and as a church, these churches are almost not the church, right? But guess what? They don't know that. They think, what? They think they're fine. Just like you think your church is fine. They're like, no, we're fine. And Jesus is like, well, actually, you're, you're, you've lost it to the degree that you're almost not the church at all. And so I think it's interesting, the lampstands, how Jesus presents himself. It says, in his right, this is verse 16, Revelation 1. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. So Jesus, like he's holding these seven churches. But guess what's in his mouth? A sharp two-edged sword. Guess where we also hear about a double-edged sword? The word of God is like a double-edged sword. It's sharp, it's piercing. Right? So this idea of Jesus with a, with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, meaning he's the sword, he's able to pierce through and understand the truth of everything. <laughs> There's a dog running at me. Hey, buddy! Um, bear with me. The guy's calling this dog, and he was running fiercely at me. He's a, I think he's a tree-walking hound. Okay, sorry about the <laughs> distraction. Oh, boy. Um, basically, Jesus, he's like, I hold the two churches in my hands. So Jesus is saying, I have the ability to critique these things, and I have truth, which is like a sword, and it's piercing, right? Truth is piercing. It shows, like, Jesus can show us the truth. And you know what? This is very interesting. So 
And I think this is good to remember. Like, Jesus shows John this. John doesn't come up and go like, well, I'm going to try to, you know, I'm going to go visit these churches. I'm going to make an assessment and I'm going to figure out what the culture of the church is. John doesn't start with, I can do this and I can know and I have truth. It starts with Jesus through the Spirit revealing this to John. And it actually says um, in verse 10, well, verse 9 and 10, he's like, I was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God. Basically, he'd been banished. And he says in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice. So what, what, this is interesting. This revelation comes to John because he was in the spirit. What does that mean? It means that he was worshiping. He was actually seeking the face of God. And so God reveals something to him. Like, I don't think John was necessarily seeking this particular revelation. He was seeking God and God's like, okay, like here's someone who's seeking me, seeking to know me and my truth. And so I'm going to reveal this to John. Interesting story in relation to that. I, the church that I go to now, I started to feel burdened. I started to feel, I would go to church, and when I would go to church, it was like a war zone to me. My gift is spiritual discernment. And so in church at times, not every Sunday, but at times I would feel the tension of the Holy Spirit trying to move in the resistance to the Holy Spirit. And so I felt burdened. God was allowing me to experience this. It's my gift. So I was in church. I'm go- I, you know, I go to church to hear a good sermon and worship. And I was going to church and I was feeling the tension between the Spirit wanting to move and people going, no, no, we, no. The Spirit's like, come on, open up. I want to do, no. I felt, the re- I felt the tension of God trying to move and the Spirit of God trying to move and the Spirit of people going, we don't, that's, no. We don't want to do that. And so I began to pray. I prayed for a whole year. I spent a whole year praying over the church, praying for the Spirit to move, praying for the hearts of people in my church to be receptive to the move of the Holy Spirit. What I would do, I would go an hour before church and I would walk around the church like like um, Gideon. Was it Gideon that walked around Jericho? I would walk around the church and I would pray. And I would pray for people to be more receptive to the move of the Holy Spirit. And I did this for a whole year. God put a burden on me for a whole year. I prayed. And for a whole year, God revealed and I experienced and I went to church. And after a year, God showed me a lot of things about the church. After a year, not much changed. I tried to talk to leaders. I tried to talk to the pastor. Everyone was like, no, that's not, nope, don't see it. Don't want to hear it. (laughs) And... I got very discouraged. But what God showed me was that there was not much receptivity. And the root of it wasn't just the people. The root of it was the leadership. And this is the church I still go to, and I'm here. I'm here to add my part, even if it's not accepted. But, but the point is that God put a burden on my heart. And out of that burden, I began to pray. And, but it was God instigated, right? And this is the same with John. It's God instigated. And so my, my encouragement to you first is you got to spend time with God. Like you can't just decide, I'm not telling you to go and start to figure things out for yourself and make assessments on your own. This is a spirit-led thing. It has to be spirit-led. God has to show you. If you're going to come to the church and say, if you're going to really attempt this at all, you need God's leading. You need to 
be in tune and in step with God and with and with what God wants to do with your church. And that's the thing about Jesus holding the seven stars in his hand and these seven lamps. <clears throat> and John <clears throat> writes, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> John writes in verse 20 of Revelation 1, As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So <clears throat> Jesus is like, these are my churches. And so we need to move with God. Like, what does God want to do for your church? It's not what you want. It's not what your pastor wants. It's not what the leaders want. It's not what the congregants want. It has nothing to do with us. It's God's church. It's in God's hands. Jesus is holding these seven stars in his hands. And guess what? There are angels over these seven churches. So there's a spiritual aspect to your church, and that is the foremost perspective you're trying to get in tune with. What does God want for your church? And look, when you stand in that, when you truly know what God wants for your church, no matter what comes against you, no matter who disagrees with you, you know, you know it's true. It's not just what you think and what you want. Like, that's going to cause division. And, and there may be division anyway, even if you're standing in what God wants. But that's the thing you need to get. First, you need to pray. You need to seek God. You need to understand what God wants for your church. And when you have that vision, even if it's just a part, man, you'll be standing in such a secure place to say, look, I know what God has shown me. And even when there's resistance you still won't be moved. And so, okay, the first church is Ephesus in Revelation. Jesus says, verse 2, chapter 2, I know your deeds and your labor and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil people and you have put those who call themselves apostles to the test and they are not and you found them to be false and you have persevered and have endured on account of my name and have not become weary, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, repent, and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I'm coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Mm. I mean, this is no small thing. This is not, you know, there's a few little things. No, this is not little. And that's cool. Jesus starts out and says, look, you, I see. I know. I know your heart. You're doing some things well. But man, look. If there's not a love for God in your midst, what, you're doing it out of duty, it's a law. If there's not lift, if love is the center, we're a community. That's what it's all about. If you've lost that, you've lost everything. And then in verse 7, the one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, the Spirit. Jesus, through John, is saying, listen to the Spirit. Like, the reason any church gets off track is because we've stopped listening to what God wants for the church. And he's like, look, everybody who can hear the Spirit, everybody who knows how to walk in the Spirit, let them hear. This is the, this is the center, and Jesus will repeat this over and over again with each church. The one who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Like, here's the central thing. Here's the thing. That's missing. This is what Paul says in Galatians. You foolish Galatians. You started with the Spirit, and now you're falling back to works, to the law. And Jesus again is saying, look, Here's the center. When you know what the Spirit says, when you know how to hear the Spirit, you'll be, then you're, you will be fine. Your church will be fine. The center is the Spirit. It's orthoceasy, right? <laughs> Next church, Smyrna. Jesus, through John, says to this church, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're actually rich. And the slander by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. The devil's going to throw you in prison. 
Have you tested? There'll be tribulation for 10 days, but be faithful even unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Here, the second church mentioned, this is the first church that Jesus doesn't say there's anything wrong with Smyrna. And again, verse 11, the one who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Pergamum. There's only two churches Jesus doesn't say there's anything wrong with. Smyrna is the first one. Now we're at the Pergamum. And he says to Pergamum, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold firmly to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have, you have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put stumbling blocks before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So you too have some who in the same way hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly. I will wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. The one who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Look, this is really interesting. He says to this church that it's a place where Satan dwells. You know, in, in Revelation, um, I think it's chapter, it's chapter 17. It talks about the harlot on the beast. And it says, it's, the harlot on the beast, it's become a haunt of demons. You, rem- you remember, the harlot on the beast is the church. It's the church prostituted to empire. And the declaration... This is in the book of Revelation where we're at. The declaration of Jesus to John is the church has become a haunt of demons. And here in verse 13, Jesus is saying this church is a place where Satan dwells. He's not talking about the outside the church. He's saying this church has become a place. It's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You're sons of Satan. Why? Because they're operating more in the character of the kingdom of darkness than the kingdom of God. And Jesus here is saying to this church, like, look, Satan has, has taken up dwelling in your church. You've become a haunt of demons. Don't think your church is some kind of sacred place where Satan's like looking through the windows but can't get in. That's the one, one of the things that I realized about my church as God began to give me discernment about my church is there was a lot of darkness there. I mean... Fierce darkness, fear. There were some strongholds of the enemy in my church. And when I would show up to church, I, you know, I would have loved just to have had a normal experience, hear a good sermon, worship, feel good, leave, and be like, yeah. But I would show up and be like, oh my gosh, I'm being spiritually attacked here at my own church. It's not a sanctuary. It's not a place where Satan can't inhabit and infiltrate. And my church was a place where there was some spiritual darkness. And I would show up to church and be like, I just want to hear a good sermon. I just want to get some good, feel-good worship. I want to get my worship on. And I was like, dang, getting spiritual attack. Why? Just like Pergamum, there were some strongholds. In my, there are some strongholds in my church of the enemy. And that's just what God showed me. And that's why I'm still there praying. But don't think your church is some kind of like place where the enemy can't have any hold. There's no perfect church. There's no pure church. Pergamum was no less. It was no less true of Pergamum. So 
again, verse 17, the one who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now there's Thyatira. I know your deeds. This is Jesus again speaking through John to the church at Thyatira. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. He's like, there's, your, your works are getting better. But I, verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I'm going to throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent. I will kill her children with the plague, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds." But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they are called, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold firmly until I come. Now look, now he did this in the last pronouncement. He's, he, he, call, he says Jezebel. Right? Jezebel is a reference to it. The, one of the worst kings, Ahab, in Israel, his wife was Jezebel, and she was worshiping Baal. There's not really a woman named Jezebel in this church. There is a person, maybe a woman, who is teaching some things in church that are actually more akin to the kingdom of Satan. And he says sexual, again, sexual immoralities. It's not necessarily that she's actually, there's not someone in this church saying, hey, let's all have sex with each other. This is not, right, the harlot on the beast prostituting itself to power. He's saying there's someone in this church teaching you to prostitute yourself to power, to empire, to cater to political parties. There's someone in this church in Thyatira who's saying, look, we got to get involved politically and we, we got to use political power to, to promote the gospel. Like there's someone in this church teaching the Christians in Thyatira that they need to cater to political power and use it to advance the kingdom. They've gotten in bed with empire. This is the accusation. Understand what it means and understand what it means for a church to prostitute itself to power. It's the harlot on the beast. And Jesus here is calling Thyatira out for this. Don't think your church has in no way prostituted itself, prostituted itself <laughs> to power, political power for selfish gain. The wrong political power, which is it's rooted in Satan, Right? Now we get to Sardis. And let's see. See what Jesus says about Sardis. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, and yet you are dead. He's saying, look, you have this reputation of being alive, but you're not. Be constantly alert and strengthened, and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in my sight. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it. Repent. Then, if you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who overcomes will be clothed in the same way. I will not erase his name from the book of life. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Like, man, he's saying, look, almost everybody at the church of Sardis is dead. They're dead. There's a few. He's like, what does he say? There's a few who walk with me. 
Dang. Like, what does Jesus really say that identifies people that are truly not dead in this church? They walk with me. They know Jesus. They know how to follow Jesus. I um, forgot to read this verse. It's from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Paul starts this chapter saying, Follow me as I follow Christ. Paul is like one of the preeminent leaders of the church of his time. And he's like, he's saying, look, you need to follow my example, but only as I follow Christ. Well, how do we know? How do you know? Like, it's okay to have spiritual elders and to, to listen and follow them. Paul was a spiritual elder, but what does he, he quantifies and says, as I follow Christ. How do you know if your spiritual leaders are following Christ? You have to be following Christ. Paul's saying, keep me accountable. Don't just follow me blatant, blankly blindly you better make sure that you're following people who are following Jesus how do you know you have to follow Jesus too and here Jesus says there's a few in Sardis who walk with me a few not many this church is this church is mostly dead there's only a few who are truly alive and what does it mean to be truly alive it means you walk with Jesus Jesus followers follow Jesus I don't have a lot of time so let's jump to Philadelphia here he says this is this is the second church that has no rebuke Jesus says I know your deeds behold I put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have followed my word and have not denied my name behold I will make those who of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie I will make them come and bow before you and make them know that I have loved you because you have kept my word and persevered. I will also keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which is about to come upon the whole world. Verse 13, to the one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And like he says, like, you have a little power. You know what? They've not prostituted themselves to the power of empire. They followed Jesus' word. They've not denied his name. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that they've verbally said something. His name, the character. In the name of means in the character. They've not denied the character. They know Jesus. They know him so intimately. They know his character. They've not denied the character of Jesus for the sake of power. And there are these Jews that are in their church, Jews, Christians. And this is the synagogue of Satan. He's saying there's a, most of the people in this church are more beholden to Satan. They think they're very religious. You could just think of Jew as someone who's very religious, keeps the law. He's like, but they don't know me. And I'm going to make them bow down before you. Like, they're the ones persecuting you. And then there's Laodicea, the last church. And I'm going to have to wrap it up with this one. And I won't get into Daniel. Darn it. <clears throat> He's like, I know your deeds. You're not hot or cold. I wish you were hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich, I have become wealthy and have no need of anything. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to apply to your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Therefore, repent I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Like here's the paradigm again. In verse 22, the one who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Here's the paradigm. I'm standing at the door. Like Jesus is talking to Christians and he's like, I'm outside of your life completely and I'm knocking at the door of your life. And look, if you can hear me, open the door. This isn't just 
did you do you have the right theology? Jesus is like, do you really know me? Do my sheep know my voice? And they open the door and I will come and dine with him and he with me. Like Jesus said, I and the Father will come and dwell with you in you. Like knowing God, having an intimate relationship, orthosiac. Jesus so, so intimate here. This church in Laodicea, we could say it's the worst church. It's the wealthiest. They're like, we're good. We have everything we need. And Jesus is like, you got nothing you need. They're like, we're clothed. And Jesus is like, you're naked. And they're like, we see everything. And he's like, you're blind. Like, we're so wealthy. And Jesus is like, you have no riches at all. You've missed it completely. The most wealthy, one of the most wealthiest churches at the time. But Jesus says, you're the most poor. Why? Because you, I'm outside. You've left me outside. You don't even know me. Again and again, every single church, Jesus says, for those who have ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit. Like I told you about that experience, right? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit was speaking to me about my church. I was burdened and I began to pray. I began to say, what? I began to ask and pray and seek God and say, what is it? What would you say about my church? And that's my encouragement to you. Start asking God, God, what do you think about my church? Well, how do we hear God? (laughs) I did a series called I'm Hearing God, of course. But like, if you can't hear God and your church isn't teaching you to hear God, there's the first problem, okay? So start seeking God. I don't know how to hear God. Well, start seeking God. For those who have ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever hears my voice. Jesus said, the church of Thyatira, there are a few who walk with me. Do you see the pattern? Jesus, it's Jesus' church. If we're not operating in concert with Jesus, then we're not really being his church and we're in danger of our lampstand being removed. We're really in danger of not being the church at all. And look, 36% 36% of millennials are like, yeah, we kind of like the church. Like, the church isn't, isn't being the church because the church, what makes the church the church is Jesus. If we don't know how to hear God, then how can we be the church God wants us to be, the Christian God wants us to be? My challenge to you is begin to ask God and seek God on behalf of your church and then begin out of that to share what God shows you. And it may be received well and it may not, but don't give up and don't leave. God's called you to this place at this time. And God's called you to himself at this place at this time, in this time, to put him first. Is your church putting God first? There's only one way you could possibly know that. Seek God. God revealed to me about my church that there's great resistance. God basically said, I can move inches, not miles. I can hardly move in this place. That's what God showed me. And I spoke that out, and it didn't make me popular or well-liked, but it's still the truth. And I'm still going to stay in this church, and I'm still going to hold this, and I'm still going to pray for this church because I know that my church at the center of my church is the desire to seek God and to follow God from the pastor down to the congregates. There's that desire. 
And yet there's a there's resistance. But it didn't come by me making my own evaluations or assessments. It came by me being burdened first by God to pray and God revealing. It all comes from the Spirit. We have to hear the Spirit. You have to seek God. And look, you know, that's a, that's a process in and of itself, but just begin. Begin praying for your church. Begin praying for God to reveal your giftings, your calling within the church. Begin to be more active. Be an activist. Be a church anthropologist, meaning learn, read, do everything you can to understand your church's culture in the context of the, the church's culture in the broadest sense. And then be an activist. Be a part. Understand your part, your gifting, your calling. Walk in it. That's what I've done. That's what's led me to this place in my own local church and in the church in general, the calling that I am called to. I'm called to be a church anthropologist and activist. And man, that's just like, that's been my heart. For I can look back over my life and that's always been my heart. Whatever church I've been a part of, I've always been concerned about my church and the church. I went to Bible college. I was concerned about the culture of that college and how it was training people to lead churches. It was a Bible college. Always, this has always been my thing. And I, I, didn't even, I didn't realize it, but looking back, I see it. I have my master's degree in, in cultural anthropology, right? And I studied the church. It's like I've realized this is who I am. This is my calling. And I'm calling you to the same not the exact same thing, because your giftings may be different, but basically, it's all about the church. We're Christians. We're a part of the body. And we're concerned with the health of the body. And we know, through Revelation, we see the health of the body is completely dependent upon hearing the Spirit, walking with Jesus, hearing His voice. When you start to listen to Jesus to walk in step with the Holy Spirit, you cannot help but then become a church anthropologist and activist. You cannot help but care about the culture of your church and to speak into that. And that's the point. That's what a church anthropologist and activist is and does. And that's what we have talked about today. Hey guys, thanks for paying attention. This has been a Construction Monk podcast podcast. I am your host, J. Randall Ori. You can catch more content at www.moderncontemplative.com or Google J. Randall Ori. I just completed a 12-day motorcycle trip. That's on my video channel. If you want to check it out, it was fun. Love you guys. Bye.